My name is Elise Neville, and this is Wrestling Before God, episode number five, The Church. Wrestling Before God is the podcast where an average member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, me, discusses how I wrestle with some of the biggest questions I have in the scriptures for this week's Come Follow Me lesson. Thanks for being here. Okay, so before I go into my questions for this episode, let's go over a brief historical background of Doctrine and Covenants section 20. So this section had started with a document called The Articles of the Church of Christ, and we discussed that in episode 2 about Oliver Cowdery. Now, remember, Oliver Cowdery is the one, he served as Joseph's scribe for most of the translation of the Book of Mormon. He was one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. He started out as a school teacher. In Kirtland, he became a justice of the peace. And then after leaving the church, he became a lawyer. And he's the one who also left the church during that really rough year of 1837. But then he came back and he was rebaptized and he wanted to come back to Utah, but he died before he could. So that's Oliver. If you haven't listened to episode two about his life yet, I really recommend it. Okay. So Oliver wrote the articles of the church in June of 1829. And this document, which you can read in his original handwriting on the Joseph Smith Papers website, it relies on the Book of Mormon as a means of detailing regulations for baptism, the sacrament, priesthood responsibilities, and so on. Almost a year after he makes that document, in 1830, the first meeting of the church was held in Fayette at the Whitmer home. And remember, the Whitmer home is the place where the final sections of the Book of Mormon were transcribed, and it's where Mary Whitmer saw the gold plates. In order to meet the requirements of the law, six people were official members of the church at its organization. Those people were Joseph, Oliver, Hiram Smith, Peter Whitmer Jr., Samuel H. Smith, and David Whitmer. And then beside these, there were, I don't know, around like 40 other observers. So section 20, which could be considered in many ways to be Joseph's revision of Oliver's document, has many of the same components as Oliver's document, but it also includes some really beautiful discourse on Latter-day Saint beliefs about the fall and the Godhead and the divine nature of humanity. It really has some of my favorite verses in all scripture, and, and I do hope we eventually can talk about those at some time. However, Today, the question I wanted to ask is a reflection of a question that I hear a lot of people asking. I think at its core, the question is something like, is the church true as an organization? And I think this can be asked in lots of different ways, but today I'll focus on two. And those are first, are the church policies true as currently organized? And the second is, Is the church true as an organization, even though its people are not perfect or the culture is flawed? So starting the first, are church policies true? And I think you can see embedded in that question, like that question is fundamentally flawed, right? Because what does it mean for a church to have true policies? And what is the difference between a policy in church and doctrine? And that is actually maybe the fundamental question, which we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. But I think this question stems from the idea that if God is unchanging and eternal, then the policies of the church should also be unchanging and eternal. 
Like the church should be the same throughout time, but the church has never been the same throughout time. There have always been changes to the church to reflect the needs of the society at the time. One of my favorite examples or one of my favorite kind of explanations of this um, is the following. So there's one non-Latter-day Saint scholar, but she studies our history and she imagines this scenario where a modern saint goes into a time machine and visits the early saints of the church. And she says, quote, the visitors would learn that sacrament meeting was held only in the tabernacle located in the center of town. This would cause them to expect to join in with all the saints in the area in a large-scale worship service, but that would likewise lead to disappointment, since at the appointed hour, the tabernacle would seem virtually empty. In time, disorientation would give way to dismay. A brother with a tobacco habit could well be seated on the stand. Another brother's shirt might be so marked with coffee stains that the visitors would certainly know that he indulged in that forbidden beverage. Still another, conceivably a bishop's counselor, might from the stand be sending the telltale aroma of a recently consumed alcoholic beverage wafting across the front rows in the building. Close quote. So in a lot of ways, that early church looked different. In fact, let's just list a few of the ways that church policies in the modern era have changed over time. And before I do that, I'll just inform you that most of my research and the formulation of my ideas around these policy changes come from Terrell Given's book called Feeding the Flock. It's excellent and I highly recommend it. So let's talk about baptism for starters. It used to be that at baptism, before getting baptized at the water's edge, the person being baptized would recite the baptismal covenant found in Alma, which is kind of cool. We don't do that anymore, but cool that they used to do that. Rebaptism used to be a very common practice. In fact, uh, one early member of the church, John Scott, recorded that, quote, nearly all the church have been baptized again for the remission of their sins since they joined the church. I have also, by the hands of Brother Joseph, as he himself has been, close quote. Rebaptism was actually required if you were attending the temple for the first time in about 1881. And if you wanted to participate in one of the church's united orders, which the United Order was a church collectivist program. It was living with all things in common. If you wanted to participate in one of those communities, then that often required rebaptism. And then we've had changes in our understanding of the sacrament. So according to Terrell Givens, he's a theologian and a philosopher, he says, quote, With no particular scriptural warrant, partaking of the bread and water was seen as a means of renewing the baptismal covenant, close quote. And so then in 1893, the practice of requiring rebaptism prior to temple admission was declared unauthorized, and the sacrament started to be looked at as the way of renewing those covenants. One of the most interesting practices that has evolved over time was the practice of sealing. So when, when the practice of sealing started at that time in the early church, they did engage in the practice of sealing couples together. So that's been somewhat consistent throughout time. But today we also have this practice of sealing together families across generations. So I'm sealed to my parents, they're sealed to their parents and so on. But in the early church, that practice did not exist in the same way. When Joseph initiated the practice of sealing multiple people together, it wasn't necessarily in families. It was, it was to bind the people of the church together to God's family. 
The emphasis wasn't on uniting biological families, not at all. The emphasis was on tying that young church community together to each other, again, by bringing it into God's family. So nowadays, when we want a family member who's passed away to be sealed to our family, if they haven't already had their work done, or if they haven't already done their work for themselves, we do their temple work by proxy, right? So on their behalf, someone is baptized, confirmed, given the priesthood, if they're a male, endowed. And then at that point, we can seal them to their immediate family, their spouse, their children, and their parents. And that binds them in a long chain of people. Or maybe it's better to think of it as like this complex web. It binds them in that way to God's family. But back then, in the early days of the church, in order to be sealed to God's family, you had to have been baptized in your lifetime. And so that's why we see what seems to us to be a really bizarre practice of people being sealed to prophets as their adopted sons and daughters. So for example, in the early days of the church, if you wanted the sealing power in your family, and everyone did, you would be sealed to a prophet of the church in order to get that blessing. So this practice was actually changed during the church presidency of Wilford Woodruff. He was the fourth president of the church. His presidency started in 1889. He was a really fascinating guy. He's the one who gives the manifesto about the church no longer practicing polygamy. And he's also the one who has a vision in the St. George Temple of really prominent American and British men and women who asked to have their temple work done for them. And in this revelation about the new way of sealing that he learns about, he conveys that people should not seal themselves to presence of the church to be part of the family of God. He seems to be saying that the way they've been doing it is a misapplication of the revelation. He concludes that the sealing power should strengthen actual family bonds. He says, quote, we want the Latter-day Saint from this time to trace their genealogies as far as they can and to be sealed to their fathers and mothers, have children sealed to their parents and run this chain through as far as you can get it, close quote. And then we have this new practice, right? Where we're now binding families across generations. And you might be asking, well, why did that take so long? <laughs> I mean, we're at the fourth president of the church at this point. Why didn't we, I mean, and, and sealing in our church today, sealing of families is one of the most important doctrines we have, right? Like, why did this take so long for us to really figure out as a, as a church? And when Wil Wilford Woodruff is talking about another subject, he's talking about uh, baptism for the dead. He talks about the way that prophets receive revelation. And I think it's fascinating and might give us some insight into this particular way that revelation has been received. So he said that when Joseph Smith received the revelation on baptism for the dead, instead of waiting, quote, for the fullness of the word of God to him concerning the baptism for the dead, he went into the Mississippi River, and so did I, as well as others, and we each baptized a hundred for the dead, without a man to record a single act that we performed. Why did we do it? Because of the feeling of joy what we had, close quote. So I think it's possible that sometimes when we see revelations occurring and then see the implementation of those revelations change over time, I don't think we need to maybe worry as much as we sometimes do about it. It's possible that we jumped in early, like Wilford Woodruff said, and 
that our later experience teaches us that we need to step back and evaluate and maybe ask some more questions about the way we're doing this. And we've seen in past episodes that sometimes the revelations that were received needed further light and knowledge, right? There are further questions needed to be asked in order to figure out how to implement those things. Another super interesting change for me has been the way that garments have changed over the course of time. So they used to go to the ankles and the wrists and they had a collar flap and there was a lot of heated debate over that style. And eventually, according to a book titled the development of LDS temple worship, which by the way is fascinating, it says, quote, in April, 1923, they did away with the collar flap, replaced tie strings with buttons and allowed women to wear modified garments with sleeves as far as the elbows and legs to the knees, close quote. I've been told that my great-grandmother Gladys, who received her endowment in 1924, adopted that new style of garment. And because of this, she was seen by her sisters-in-law as being kind of a rebel, even though she was deeply devout. And the historical record gives evidence that this was really common. There was an attitude in the church at the time that the change was because people wanted to follow the quote, vain and indecent practices of the world, close quote. So there was some judgment about uh, the change in the garment. It was still required after that though, to wear that old style temple garment when participating in temple ordinances. So another one of my grandmas told me once that she had gone to the temple with my grandpa, her husband and her parents. And while they were there, her mom, in a bit of surprise, indicated something like, oh, he doesn't have his temple garments on, pointing or indicating my grandpa. And I'm assuming she could see through his white dress shirt and could tell that his garments underneath were short-sleeved. None of the temple workers at the time brought it up, but it's just a funny story to me that reminds me of that standard that they had. Okay, so we've seen that the church changes over time. Some of those changes may be more or less distressing to us, right? But because the church changes, because we see differences, does that make the church any less true? Or does that mean that the church is not led by God? So again, earlier I said that I feel that sometimes there's this expectation that if the church is true, it must be unchanging and eternal or the same. It's almost like we expect it to have come forth fully formed. And I just don't think that's the case. I think there are perhaps multiple reasons for the church to change. One of them is an idea that we've already talked about in the podcast, which is this idea that God allows us to work things out. He wants us to study in our minds and find solutions and come to him for answers. It seems to me to be the pattern of God that he doesn't answer questions that we're not already asking. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I've been training people at work And I try to show them shortcuts or warn them about things that might happen if they don't track this data in a certain way. And I'm giving them a ton of information at a time and it's probably really overwhelming and they don't remember all of these little tips that I give them along the way. It's just too much at once. And so it's not until the data that they're tracking gets lost, right? And they can't figure out why. And they come to me and they ask the question and then I can explain to them the piece that they missed while I talked to them the first time, because now that information is relevant because now they've had experience that backs up the fact that, Oh, I actually do need this information or that that information has become relevant to me. And I think God works that way with us. 
not because he's not perfect and not because the church shouldn't be perfect, but because we as people are not perfect and because the beauty and wisdom and perfection of the church would be lost on us until we see the need for it. I think we have a lot of other changes coming to the church based on, first of all, what President Nelson has said, but based on the questions that we ask, that our prophets ask God. I do want to touch again for one more second on this idea of policy versus doctrine changing. And there is a difference between those two changing. Doctrine doesn't change. It does. It is eternal throughout time. Policies do change. And some of you might be asking, what is the difference? Okay, so we'll be talking about that extensively in a, an upcoming episode. So I'll let you know when that is. All right, so we've covered that first question. Is the church true in policy? Let's move now to discussing that second question, which is, is the church true as an organization, even though the culture seems so flawed? I was talking to a group of friends recently. They are from a variety of different backgrounds, and they've lived all over the country and experienced the church in all of those places. And when I asked them their thoughts on the church versus the gospel, several of them expressed that Mormon culture can be really challenging. Specifically, the people make participating in the church sometimes difficult. And my friends aren't alone in that perspective. According to researcher Jana Reese, the top reason people have been leaving the church most recently is because they feel judged or misunderstood. I found that really surprising. But even more surprising than that, to me at least, is something else she said about the people who leave. She wrote, quote, It has been surprising, actually, how many younger former Mormons still have what Mormons would call a testimony of the core tenets of LDS belief. Close quote. In an interview, she said something I found particularly heartbreaking. She said, quote, In some cases, they're believing without belonging. Close quote. That, to me, feels tragic. We have people who believe in our faith, but they stop participating with us because they don't feel like they belong. And maybe you've been in this place too. Maybe you have felt like you didn't belong. And I think we as a, as a community can do better. I think we can all be part of a solution. We can do better at being the compassionate, loving, and accepting faith community. And on the other side, we can be more resilient to judgment and not being accepted by people at church. I want to share a couple of stories that illustrate this point. These stories are really difficult for me to share, but here goes. The first story is only one of many, many examples that people who have been in wards with me could share, but this is the one that I feel, I think, the most shame about. It's a situation where I really worry that my actions could have been a stumbling block to someone's faith and belief. So in one of my BYU wards, I was the Relief Society counselor over education. And there was a teacher who I was under the impression was set to leave the ward at the semester. She had a unique teaching style and it didn't really speak to me. And I let that influence this recommendation that I made to the Relief Society president to release her. I, you know, she was leaving and I thought it would be better to have a teaching transition well before the beginning of the next semester. The Relief Society president took my recommendation and that teacher was released. I am super ashamed of this decision because I didn't counsel with the Lord in prayer. I didn't reach out to the teacher herself. I just made what I thought was a practical recommendation. 
A few weeks later, the Relief Society president approached me and asked me to consider calling this teacher again, because apparently I'd misunderstood and she wasn't going to be leaving the ward. And in addition, I'd heard several girls mention to me how sad they were that she wasn't teaching anymore because they really felt the spirit from her. I felt so bad. (laughs) I think if I remember right, we did end up calling her back into teaching. And what sometimes happens in situations like this is we look at the person who has stewardship, in this case, me, and we wonder why were they allowed to make a mistake in the situation if the church is actually led by God? And as for this experience, I can say this was a mistake I made. I was acting as myself, not as a representative of God. I did it wrong. But my ward, they took it in stride. My ward and this teacher were very compassionate and forgiving. I learned a really powerful and memorable lesson about the importance of consulting God in my choices and also about giving grace to my leaders. As Elder Holland so eloquently stated, quote, Be kind regarding human frailty, your own as well as that of those who serve with you in a church led by volunteer, mortal men and women. Except in the case of his only perfect begotten son, imperfect people are all God has ever had to work with. That must be terribly frustrating to him, but he deals with it. So should we. And when you see imperfection, remember that the limitation is not in the divinity of the work. As one gifted writer has suggested, when the infinite fullness is poured forth, It is not the oil's fault if there is some loss because finite vessels can't quite contain it all. Those finite vessels include you and me, so be patient and kind and forgiving. Close quote. And well, I guess it's pretty self-serving and easy for me in this situation to say, be patient and kind with me (laughs) because I made a mistake. But there are, of course, times when I've been on the other side of that situation And where my testimony has been rocked with my experiences with leadership or ward members. In one place we lived, I was the primary president in a ward with lots of less active members. And the leaders of that ward felt that one of the best ways to activate those people was to give them callings in the primary. And so it was very common that even though I would contact everyone the day before church, I would still have half the teachers not show up. So I did some unconventional things to try to help both the structure of primary and to fellowship the teachers. So at that time we were still in the three hour block and I felt like those primary teachers needed the support from their priesthood and relief society classes. So since we only had about 20 ish kids show up to primary on a weekly basis, I checked in the handbook to make sure this was allowed, but I stopped splitting up junior and senior primaries. All the classes met and the teachers taught during that second hour. And then we had sharing time during the third hour and we let the teachers go to their adult classes. That change was not appreciated by my primary presidency in the stake. In fact, when they came to see our primary, we had a long meeting afterwards where they just basically told us all the things we were doing wrong. (laughs) And I got in the car after church and I just cried and was so sad. And my husband said, Hey, honey, the church is a volunteer organization. You're doing your best and trying to figure out what's best for our ward. And those stake leaders are doing the same thing. He helped me zoom out a little in my perspective and realize that in our callings, all of us are asked to do things that really stretch us and maybe do some things that we're even incapable of. And yet through those experiences, we learn so much. 
I have another kind of silly example. So our primary room was set up so there were like eight rows of chairs with a little aisle in the middle. It was kind of like a skinny room. And I felt like all those rows were making it harder for the kids at the back to hear in the front. And I felt like those kids in the back were trying to be more disruptive. So I decided to turn the front of the room the other way. So it was spread out more from side to side, but there were just two rows of kids. And so we as a presidency were closer to all the kids and we could see them all. They could hear us. But when I presented this idea to the primary presidency in the other ward who met either before or after us, depending on the year, they were upset. They did not like the idea at all, but I really wanted to see if it would help us. So for like a year or so, I went into the room early. I moved the podium and all the chairs. And then after primary, I moved them all back. And about this one issue, there was just so much gossip and unrest every, almost every week I heard something like, why are you doing that? They don't like that in the other ward, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then I just had regular problems where teachers felt I was doing a bad job and they complained about me to other members of the ward. And sometimes I used to joke with the bishop, just make me a primary teacher. It would be so much easier for you to get a new primary president than a primary teacher. I'd rather teach. (laughs) And I could have resented my ward members, I guess. But in the process of serving those people, I really had loved them. I really did love them so much. And I wanted to give them the same grace that they had been giving me complaints or not. And then of course, like most people, there are those really faith rocking stories, right? One of those experiences just rocked my soul and my entire worldview. It was one of those experiences where a leader you love and admire so much does something that alters your view of them and of people in general and makes you question everything. I remember one Sunday I was wrestling in the pew in sacrament meeting with these thoughts and I was overwhelmed with frustration and anger and pain and I couldn't contain my feelings and my eyes just started leaking. (laughs) And so when it was time for Sunday school, I just went out to our car and I was so mad and I was praying in so much anger. I was so frustrated at the hypocrisy I felt I saw at church. I was seriously considering in that moment never coming to church again. And my husband, Brad, came out to check on me. He wanted to hear what was wrong. And I spent that Sunday school hour telling him all my feelings and telling him I never wanted to come to church again if the church wasn't actually making a difference in people's behavior. And he listened. He really listened to me. And as I was talking, I I started to hear how self-righteous I sounded. And I realized that I also was a hypocrite by attending church if sinners didn't qualify. And once I realized that, Brad said, well, so where should we go? And I think that question has been so helpful to me. If sinners are not qualified to be at church, where else should we go to learn how to practice the skills of Christianity? I've often heard of the church referred to as a hospital for the sick, and I like that. I think it's very, very true. But I also like to think of the church as a middle school orchestra were all pretty terrible. Some students are working more diligently than others at practicing their instruments, but we're all in class and we're all attempting to follow the cues of our conductor and we all stumble through our arrangements. But sometimes there's this recognizable, beautiful melody. There's a guy in the church who's one of my heroes when it comes to understanding the church as an exercise in being Christ-like. His name was Eugene England, and he passed away in 2001 from brain cancer. 
but he wrote an essay titled, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. It's a beautiful essay, and I'm going to read an excerpt in a second. You really should go online and read the whole thing. But before I start quoting it, I want to talk about his life for a minute, because I feel like it gives a lot of credibility to his position in this essay. He had a really fascinating career, which covered science, literature, and math. He served in the Air Force. He got his PhD from Stanford in English literature. He taught LDS Institute. He was Dean of Academic Affairs at St. Olaf Lutheran University. He worked for the Church History Department, and eventually he taught literature at BYU. He had many growing experiences in the church as he moved all over the country and served in various leadership positions. He mentions several of these growth experiences in his essay. One he does not mention in the essay, however, is an experience he had while he was a professor at BYU. So as a little bit of background, Eugene England was a believer in the idea that God could progress and continue to learn. He clarified in that belief that as far as our earthly sphere was concerned, God's knowledge was perfect. But as it related to other knowledge outside of earthly experience, it was his belief that God could still progress. And truly, there is a lot of evidence to support this position based on quotes we have from the early prophets of the church like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And so in 1979, Eugene England gave a talk to BYU honors students expounding on this perspective. That talk eventually led to a written reprimand from an apostle. And I'm not actually going to give the apostle's name here. You could look it up if you wanted to. It's not a secret. But I think by me not sharing the name, it allows us better to apply this situation to our own lives. So this apostle begins his letter to Brother England by stating, quote, This may well be the most important letter you have or will receive. I shall write in kindness and in plainness and perhaps with sharpness. I want you to know that I am extending to you the hand of fellowship, though I hold over you at the same time the scepter of judgment, close quote. Among many other things in that letter, Eugene England was told to stop teaching those ideas. The apostle stated, quote, If it is true, as I am advised, that you speak on this subject of progression of God at firesides and elsewhere, you should cease to do so. If you give other people copies of the material you sent me with the quotations it contains, you should cease to do so. It is not in your province to set in order the church or to determine what its doctrine shall be. It is my province to teach to the church what the doctrine is. It is your province to echo what I say or to remain silent. Close quote. After that, according to an essay written by Eugene's daughter, quote, distressed upon realizing that an apostle saw him as a nuisance and potential heretic, as well as that a sensitive private letter had been made public, England soon wrote a letter to clear up misunderstandings and assure him that he would, quote, obey his directions exactly, close quote. And Eugene did do what he was asked. So with that background in mind, I want you to listen to an excerpt from this essay he wrote. Quote, In the life of the true church, there are constant opportunities for all to serve, especially to learn to serve people we would not normally choose to serve, or possibly even associate with, and thus opportunities to learn to love unconditionally. There is constant encouragement, even pressure, to be active, to have a calling, and thus to have to grapple with relationships and management, with other people's ideas and wishes, their feelings and failures, to attend classes and meetings and to have to listen to other people's sometimes misinformed or prejudiced notions, and to have to make some constructive response, to have leaders and occasionally to be hurt by their weakness and blindness, 
even unrighteous dominion, and then to be made a leader and find that you too, with all the best intentions, can be weak and blind and unrighteous. Church involvement teaches us compassion and patience, as well as courage and discipline. It makes us responsible for the personal and marital, physical and spiritual welfare of people we may not already love or may even heartily dislike, and thus we learn to love them. It stretches and challenges us, though disappointed and exasperated, in ways we would not otherwise choose to be, and thus gives us the chance to be made better than we might choose to be, but ultimately need and want to be. Close quote. I just love everything he says here. I love that he recognizes and validates that participating in church can be hard, that it can be hard to sit in the class of a gospel doctrine teacher who you fundamentally disagree with, or that testimony meeting seems unbearable. (laughs) But England's point is that that struggle is the real thing that makes church so valuable. The point of the church isn't just, or even mostly, to learn lessons of gospel doctrine. It's applying those lessons in a setting with people you may not even like. The point is confronting that tension and using it to become a better human. This situation between the Apostle and Eugene England is such a perfect example of this tension. You may think the Apostle was wrong, you may think Eugene England was wrong, but our membership in the church invites us to sit together at this table of discomfort and work these things out. This is that orchestra classroom in which we engage in our practice of Christianity. In one of her essays, Jana Reese writes about this tension that we see. In this case, she's talking about the complexity we see in our Bible heroes, but I think it's so applicable to the way we experience church. She says, again, of the Bible, quote, We have to learn to read it like grown-ups, rejecting what is evil and holding fast to what is good. To only see the happy or loving aspects of the Bible is to embrace a fallacy, one the Bible itself wants to dispel. And to only see the negative canceling anything good because it sits cheek by jowl along things we know to be wrong is just a fallacy of a different kind. Our job is to call out the negative and also to celebrate what is good, even when, especially when, they appear inextricable. Close quote. And I hope the same is true of our experience at church. I hope we can work to root out those parts of church culture that chase people away and that we can embrace and celebrate the good. And so I propose that the answer to the two questions I've asked today is this. Yeah, the church is true. Its policies are open to change because they're reflections of the questions we ask and the growth we experience as a body of Christ. And then the cultural growth opportunities we experience because of the volunteer nature and geographical structure of the church also make it true. Because the church has been organized in a way to promote the intense growth experience of its members. That's the point. Thanks so much for joining me today in a discussion of Doctrine and Covenants section 20. If you have any questions or comments or corrections to today's podcast, please email me at the address found in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, I'd love you to leave a review. It does really help. See you next time.